0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. This is the journey towards developing better products that our customers love. Today's guest is Ben Foster. He's the co-founder and executive chairman at Prodify, and he's convinced that product is the single most important success driver for tech companies. And I actually see things kind of that way too, just in general for companies, right? This is the source of new revenue for organizations. It's pretty important to us as product people. He founded Prodify to share what he has learned from being an advisor to over 50 tech companies already, to realizing their full potential. And Prodify has gone on to advise many other companies as well, and has led successful technology products for the last 25 years. He is also the co-author of Build What Matters, delivering key outcomes with vision-led product management. And he's here to share his advice that he most frequently gives to the company leaders he advises regarding creating products. I think we'll have a lot to learn together. As a reminder, this is a sponsored podcast as well. It's made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. And this is my system to help product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing to product to really increase their performance together by building the necessary skills and really working in alignment with each other, fabricating better, building trust to reach their North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or those established teams that are facing some big challenge together or just want to move more rapidly together. It's unlike other training, and it really is an experience that we walk through. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you. Also, we do create written show notes for everything we discuss. You'll find a full summary of what we talk about, including a one-page action guide. This is a PDF you can download with the key concepts that we, can, we discuss for you to put those into action immediately. It's also a great discussion guide if you wanna share it with your other product managers or product people, product teams, to talk about some of the topics. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 449. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Really excited about the conversation. I love talking to people who have some deep experience, both in the product world. So you were in the product world for many years and then have gone on to help lots of companies. And I like talking to people like you because you hear about what the real world problems are across many companies, right? Not just one group. But first, I kind of want the backstory how did you originally get into product work, and then how did that turn into advising companies on product work?
1: Yeah, I'll cover the first part first, which is how I got into product in the first place. So you got to rewind the clock way back, just uh, a few years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I graduated from Berkeley in 1997, and what a time and a place to be at the to- at that moment. I felt like I was in the, a new world renaissance period. And I'm in the Bay Area, and it's 1997. And the dot com boom is in full swing. And I didn't even know the funny thing is I didn't even know what to do with the statistics degree that I had just acquired. And it's funny, in retrospect, you'd be like, Oh, that's actually a great degree. But at the time, nobody really knew what you were supposed to do with it. And so I ended up working for this company where I was manning the phones, answering questions from these Wall Street investor types about the software that we had recently acquired. And when the phones weren't ringing, they had had me do QA on the product. And I started filing bug reports. And over time, bug reports started to turn into you know, ideas for improvements of the product and usability. And that started to turn into feature ideas and concepts for the product direction that we could go and so on. And so literally, one day, somebody came over to my desk and said, are you Ben? Uh, I was like, yeah, am I in trouble? <laughs> you know? and, and they said, how would you like a job in product management? And I guess the rest is history from there. So that's my story for how I got into product. And then how I moved from being in more of an operational role into advising was I had done I'd risen through the ranks and worked in product executive roles and so on. And there was a little bit of a piece of me just needing a break, I think, from that because it's very taxing on you after a while. And while I was taking a break, I at the same time didn't want to have this gap in my resume. So I thought, well, I'll just do some advising type work. I'll reach out to some former network contacts and things like that And it was one of those situations where just one thing led to another. And I started to get referrals for other companies that I could speak with, et cetera. And I started to really enjoy that work as well. And what's interesting about the arc of my career is that I've actually gone back and forth. So a lot of people will do operational roles and then they get into consulting and then that's it. And for me, I've actually floated back and forth between these two arenas, which has been really interesting in its own right, because I keep learning something in one arena and applying it in the other. And I feel like that's made me stronger over time. So I guess that's my story on both of those fronts.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really a good experience. Move back and forth a little bit from doing real product work on products and then advising companies, seeing what all the issues are and taking on those issues. And I'm most curious about that. What are those challenges? It seems like we, we all like to say this is our environment and so we're different. But the reality is we hear a lot of the same challenges across companies, and I'm sure you probably do as well. Sure. Or maybe some big emerging things. I know there's things always changing. AI is a big one on everyone's mind at the moment. Sure. But if you could take us through some of the key challenges that you're running into and what companies are doing about overcoming that, so turning those things into opportunities, that would be great. We'd love to have that discussion.
1: Yeah, sure. I founded Prodify as an advisory practice where I was initially just myself. And I pulled in another person who had been on my team, et cetera, to try to work together to think about how we could collaborate and how we could help companies by sharing a lot of the knowledge from the experience that we had previously. And this boutique practice that we have now for advising firms and having seen a lot of different companies at this stage and seeing them at a level of depth that I think is more deep than a lot of board members and things like that would because they'll, for example, see what's on the roadmap and a single PowerPoint slide or something like that. Okay. We'll get deep into why certain things are not on the roadmap and things like that and get into the weeds on those things. So it's nice to have that level of visibility. And with that visibility, I think that there are several different categories of things that we've identified as being typical areas that companies struggle when it comes to product. And there's like a few different classifications of areas in which i think that they can get outside help that's particularly valuable so when we wrote build what matters we basically codified all of our learnings (laughs) over working with 100 plus companies and the learnings led to the sort of first chapter of the book which is called the top 10 dysfunctions in product management hmm. and and so we found that there were these common themes as you're describing that seem to be pretty present in a lot of different companies and every time we talk to a product manager who's been around the block and they've been at four different companies they say yeah i encountered these three at that company and i counted those five over there and i got this one over here and it's just, <laughs> it, it is very consistent what these themes end up being so There's the kind of like dysfunctions that you tend to see in terms of, let's say, how decisions get made, where, for example, stakeholders end up taking priority over customers or assumptions get made where you should be doing discovery work instead and things along those lines. But the three areas in which we tend to help companies the most, where I think that they're looking for guidance because maybe they haven't been there before, they haven't faced these types of challenges before, even because... Sometimes because they're running into some issue, let's say COVID happens, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Or sometimes their company is accelerating and taking off up into the right and they're faced with new challenges that they haven't seen previously. And so I think as advisors, we can help them see around corners. And we tend to do that on these three fronts. So one of them is is direction. So I would think everything related to what are the core metrics that you're really trying to focus on, what's your product vision, and what's your strategy for how you're going to go get there. The second category would be around people so this is how and when you hire those members of the product team what does the structure of that team actually look like how do you assign people to different pods to make sure you have the right types of coverage the right kinds of empowerment of the team members and the right types of accountability across the team as well and then the third category tends to be on process and practice how do you continue to have ongoing development and learning what are the practices that you use for sharing and communicating with the rest of the company? What are the ways in which you ensure that discovery work is getting done properly and at the right points? And how do you streamline execution? So those tend to be the sort of like areas And every company that I've ever spoken with, no, no matter what stage they're in, has some set of flaws across each of these areas. And it's just, it's not because they're bad at what they do. It's because it's just really hard to get right.
0: Yeah, and those are all big areas, right? They each one take time. One that comes up a lot when I'm talking to people and also when I'm helping organizations with my rapid product mastery experience is that strategy issue, right? And so many times the product people don't have an understanding of what the organizational strategy is. And so it's really hard to push things that are aligned with the strategy when you don't know what that that strategy is to start with. That's a great place to start. Do you want to talk more about just what you're running into with organizations that say, mm-hmm. we have our mission, maybe we have a vision on top of that. Not everyone does. I think it's pretty important. And then sometimes they have a stated of strategy, and it's just not getting communicated. Sometimes they mm-hmm. don't have a state of strategy. What are you finding? What do you help with?
1: Yeah, there's a whole variety of issues along those lines. I'll just start at the top. I think that a lot of companies will have a mission statement. It's very typical mm-hmm. that they have that. And they think that's actually a like a strategy or that they think that's a vision and the reality is those two things are very different from one another a mission statement is why you're doing what you're doing the vision is where you intend to be in several years time and the strategy is the plan of attack for how you're going to go get there right um and so the first thing is I think that they make a mistake in thinking that their mission equates to a vision. And there's a lot of work that goes into a vision. When I was the chief product officer at Whoop, I left the company with a seventy page long mission. I'm sorry, vision about what the future state of the product was going to be on all these different kinds of fronts, how we were going to manage it, how we were going to operate it, etc. And there was a lot of clarity, I think, that was provided along those lines that there's no way any mission statement could ever like fulfill that need. So that's number one. I think number two is a lot of times I'll go into to companies and I'll meet with the CEO to have some initial conversation. And I'll say, hey, walk me through your vision for your company. And they'll be like, oh, let me show you. I'm, I'm really excited about this. And then they'll say something like, our vision is to get to 3 million or 3 billion revenue in five years or something like that. And I'm like, okay, that's the byproduct of you being successful executing your vision. What's the actual vision itself? What's the customer value that you're going to deliver? And I think that too often the vision is not tied to customer outcomes, not focused on customer value that needs to be delivered. And if you really look at the role of product plays vis-a-vis all the other functions that are in a company, product is really the one that's concentrated on the creation of customer value, from which you're then in a position to derive business value, right? And nobody else is really looking at it quite that same way. And that's why that product investment is so critical, because everything else stems from it. So that's the second kind of issue that I see when it comes to strategy. And then the third one is even those companies that do have a good job, where they've built a strong vision, they have a reasonably well detailed strategy that kind of Sets how that vision is going to be accomplished and breaks it down into milestones and so on. The problem is there's a complete disconnect that ends up existing between the work that the PMs on the ground are actually doing and these kind of like documents or whatever that basically sit on a digital shelf collecting digital dust. And no one is really paying attention to them or it's not actually driving. The work that is happening by the team. So, there's that sort of untethering of those two things ends up being a really big concern. And I think a lot of the process stuff that I was talking about earlier really fits into that category of how do you, as a product leader, connect the dots between the what and the why and the how of where you're going overall to the actual day to day work that the teams are doing, whether that's in an agile methodology or any other.
0: Yeah, that disconnect might be because they just haven't heard about the strategy. So,
1: yeah, sometimes they haven't heard about it. That's totally true.
0: Two quick things on this one with a team that they weren't a product team wasn't aware of what the organizational strategy was. So I gave them the instruction to go talk to whoever the right VP is to find out. And the VP was just floored. You're kidding. We talk about it all the time. And I've heard that more than once that the senior leadership team. Yeah. They're thinking about strategy a lot, but it's not maybe filtering down. It's getting missed somehow. Any suggestions on helping with that part, the, that communication aspect?
1: Yeah. One of the challenges that I issue to the senior leadership of the team when I see that type of thing happening, and the best way to understand it is just to literally ask, you go ask the CEO, hey, what's your strategy? And then you ask the people who are actually doing the work, you say, what's the strategy? And either they don't have an answer, or they have a completely different answer. And that's an indication that, hey, the CEO to the CEO, they may feel like they've communicated it well, or they may feel like it's well understood within their organization. But this is definitely a place where perception is reality. And so i challenge them to go ask their team members to explain the strategy back to them and they're usually shocked by the results that they get it's they don't bother to do that verification that the team actually understands what's going on and it does require a lot of repetition i think that's part of the problem right Mm -hmm. as everybody's got their day job and they're busy with a bunch of other things on a more smaller scale than often the strategy will be related to and so the, the leaders will think that they've communicated it. And maybe they have communicated it once or twice. But then you got new employees who have joined since the last time they talked about it. People have been having conversations at the water cooler about it. And it's gone off in different tangents, et cetera. And you just need to be repeating those same messages. And not just about talking about all the things that are included in your strategy. So much of strategy is about all the things that you have to say no to. And the way that you focus and the things you're saying these are not part of what we're doing right now and if everybody can repeat that kind of thing back to you then it's usually a really good indication that you've done a good job as a product leader
0: i'm taking a short break from the interview to tell you about my favorite annual conference for product managers and leaders It is the PDMA Inspire Innovation Conference. PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association, has been researching, developing, and curating the product management body of knowledge and innovation body of knowledge for us since 1976. That's about 50 years of product knowledge and expertise that I bet you're unfamiliar with. I certainly am not familiar with all of it, and I love learning more. This is where people new to product work go to meet those with deep experience, and it's also where those of us with deeper experience go to network. This year, I'll be attending sessions, networking, and interviewing several of the speakers that are discussing topics on product innovation processes, customer insights, portfolio management, and much more. It's held September 16th to 19th in New Orleans, so just coming up in a few weeks. You can check it out now by going to pdma.org. And when you come to the conference, please introduce yourself as I love to meet listeners. I will be spending some of my time in what they call the Innovation Cafe. So when you come, look for the Innovation Cafe. That's where I'll be interviewing speakers. And it's a great conference. Again, check out pdma.org to find out more. Hope to see you there. To me, this is just being responsible for resources in the proper way. And every organization has too much going on for the resources they have. And as product people, I might be working on something that I recognize brings great value to customers and is excited about. And there's a lot of energy around it. And yet it's not particularly aligned to what the organization is doing. And I've run into this problem before where I've got excited about, hey, here's a group of customers we can help. Here's how we can help them. And only later to find out oh there's not a lot of support inside the organization for this going very far because it's not actually aligned
1: yeah i think that's right but your point about alignment is really critical here because it's there's only so much that you can do in product directly yourself a lot of it has to do with pulling together a bunch of other groups right if you even look at the code that gets delivered that's delivered by engineering right and if you look at the operational pieces that's delivered by somebody else you look at how it's marketed etc and so there needs to really be this coordination and this alignment that spans across the different groups because you don't want to launch a product and have nobody in marketing talking about it or nobody in sales trying to sell it, etc. Nobody in customer success trying to utilize it to try to deliver greater customer value. I it's see. really when all those things come together that it has even a chance of being successful. And I think that there's so much emphasis and focus on product management about prioritizing the perfect thing when you got a stack list of 100 different things. And it's kind of like you could probably choose any of the top 50 And it would be fine as long as there was alignment across the organization of delivering it. Where you make the mistake is where marketing prioritizes item number one, product prioritizes item number two, somebody else prioritizes item number three, and now suddenly everyone's completely disconnected. And the person who's really suffering from that is the customer.
0: Very good point. And the second thing I just want to double back on was the vision that you talked about. There's been some good academic research on the power of organizations that have clear vision and how they outperform those who don't and there was one large organization that you would know the name of that did not have a vision and they thought that was okay as i was talking to them was like, yeah it feels outdated right we have a strong mission we know what we're doing and then the decision came up if they were going to acquire a company or not and this would have been so much easier if they had a vision because they couldn't figure out if acquiring this company aligned with what they wanted to be doing together or not and that's what a vision is clearly about right you stated where we see ourselves in 10 years so i think these tools are fundamental And I'm really glad that you brought up some issues around these things.
1: Yeah, your point about vision is spot on as well. I think that what it really does is it facilitates decision making. And if you think about that from a strategic perspective, absolutely, should we acquire this company, these kind of like top level decisions that really need to be made, etc. It's an important element of that. But it's also something that is critical from a cultural perspective as a company continues to grow because it's the only way that as an executive you can feel confident pushing decisions down in the organization, right? Otherwise you're gonna feel like you have to make all the calls because you're the only one who actually understands like, you know, where you're going. And to the extent that it's documented and that it's understood, et cetera, then you can say, you know what, you understand where we're trying to go to as well. You've got everything you need. You have all the context. You have all the skill sets. You go make the call. And that's what allows, I think, companies to move so much faster when they have that. And that's probably, to me, it's, it really comes back to speed, which is companies can be so much faster and better at their decision making than another one when they have a really well understood and aligned vision and strategy.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, moving on to people then. You talked about how do we hire? When do we hire? What's the right structure? How do we organize our teams? Give us some more insights about what you're often helping people with there.
1: The first one, we tend to work with a whole variety of different sizes of companies. And depending on the size of company, you run into very different challenges on the people front. So if it's an early stage startup, and we're talking to the founder, they might have a question of when should I hire my first product manager? And Or do I hire a VP of product first and then have that person hire product managers later? Or do I hire more junior first? Things like that. So I think that there's a lot of confusion for those early stage companies about what what the right timing is to do that. And a lot of times they make the mistake of trying to hire too senior too fast. And the issue with that is that, of course... You know, it's nice to have somebody who can do that level of things. But a lot of times the work that needs to be done is at the bottom of the product stack. (laughs) It's really defining of requirements and execution of those things and working with engineering, etc. And there's not a lot of tremendous VPs of product that are super excited about that particular work that maybe they had done 10 years prior in their career. Now, the second problem is, of course, they start stepping on each other's toes because the VP of product is like, hey, I want to work on the vision and the strategy and stuff like that. And I'm kind of like, look, as the founder, you are... The vp of product like that is your role until you can no longer do it because you simply don't have the time so unless you're ready to seed those types of decisions to somebody else you're just going to end up in a situation where you step on each other's toes and that's not really beneficial for anybody so i usually recommend that they hire a relatively junior initially and only when they have like a small team of product is that the right time to then say okay we need somebody to lead this group and that's the best kind of like path in almost every circumstance Unless one of the co-founders happens to be a product executive from some prior place or whatever, they like fulfill that role immediately. And then, as companies mature, they start to run into this question of how do they make sure that there is that connection between the strategy and the work that's getting done. And that tends to be a lot of focus is really around communication within the team and how you divide responsibilities amongst product managers. And then, when you get to the really large kind of organizations, a lot of the people stuff turns more into how you maintain culture across the team, what the ratios should be between product and engineering, etc. How you ensure that you're not duplicating efforts across different team members and that you stay streamlined in that regard. We all probably remember that story from Yahoo several years ago where they had made all these acquisitions and they didn't even know the companies that they acquired. Like they had made so many that they had four different departments at Yahoo that were all working on literally the same exact product. And none of the departments even knew that the other product that the other departments existed. It's just it's right. unfathomable the kinds of waste and things like that happen in some of these organizations. And so that's an that's the kind of arena that the issues around people tend to be focused on and then you get into questions like how do you maintain or create diversity within your team i think a lot of times certainly there's demographic diversity and things but there's also just diversity of thought diversity of experience do you have a combination of b2b people and b2c people and marketplace people and b2c and things like that where they can share some of their learnings from the prior places that they've been <laughs> and to the extent that anybody can take their experience and translate that to expertise that applies to the next company, and they can share that with other members of the team. Then, hopefully, every time you're hiring that next product manager, you're solving what I call the N plus one problem, which is it's not just that you hire somebody into a role, it's that you're taking a team of N people and you're turning it into a team of N plus one people. And they're right, quite a question there is who's the right hire that's going to make your team of N plus one? as strong as it could possibly be.
0: Okay, yeah, so you need to hire for the team. It has to be a good fit, something that makes the team better all the way across. So very important. Okay, so some really good advice on when to hire. I think you use the word pod as you described this, which kind of has a, some connotation, right? That shows up in some startup worlds, I think. It was a Stripe may have originally talked about that language a lot. What are you seeing in terms of actual structuring teams? How to, what kind of teams you need are they truly autonomous? How? Just tell me about teams a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. There's several different ways of structuring teams within a pod concept, but just to make sure that everybody who's listening is clear on what I mean by a pod, what that typically translates to is a dedicated team that's working on a particular set of problems, has a certain set of goals that they're allocated to, to work on, and they have some level of autonomy to figure out the best way of doing that on their own, mm-hmm. and they are responsible for their own roadmaps. When I was at Whoop, which was making this wearable device and had these various elements of the product suite within the application we had broken things down in such a way that each of those groups had autonomy to make their own decisions and it was my role as the head of product there to ensure that there was alignment across them that the puzzle pieces fit together etc but it wasn't my job to be dictatorial and tell everybody what they were supposed to do so a pod would be a product manager a designer an engineering lead a pool of engineers, usually something in the range of a handful of five to seven, something along those lines. And maybe it has other functions as well, it could be like a scrum master, it could be part of that depending on the way in which your team works, it could be a data scientist or a researcher, etc. But you basically have this kind of sort of full stack pod effectively that can like work on these different areas. And so we give them something that they were accountable for making happen, so that we can hold them accountable to these metrics that they're trying to move. But then if they're going to actually be accountable for those metrics, it means that they also have to have decision-making authority of what they work on for the most part. And, and so that combination of things has, in my view, become the de facto way of doing software development these days. company uh, that's been founded in the last 20 years, I would say. So that's the general pod structure. Now, there's a lot of different ways of breaking pods up to have different areas of ownership. And so you could break it down by different areas of the product. You could break it down by personas that you're trying to focus on. You could break different pods down by metrics that you're trying to move you could break pods down by sometimes geographic depending on the nature of the product maybe it has tremendously different geographic elements to it in which case you might break it down by geography or other kind of like market segment if you will for multi-product companies obviously they can break it down by product etc so there's a lot of different ways of breaking these teams down and the there is no one best answer But there is this issue that you need to resolve, which is that whatever seams you have in your organizational structure are likely to be propagated as seams in the product that gets delivered by that group. And that's something known as Conway's Law, if you haven't heard of it. But Conway's Law basically just says, whatever your org structure is going to be reflected in what gets delivered by that org structure. And so where the question is, where do you want those seams to live? What is the best or the worst place for those to be? And I usually recommend you think about your organizational structure in such a way that you minimize the impact, the negative impact of those seams in the experience for the end customer.
0: Really important, right? So if we have a company that might be developing some family of web services for businesses, right? So you can go host your website. You can do all the things one might need to. I can certainly see and have seen that the user interface for me as a user, probably reflects the different functions, the different silos that show up, right? So if there's one pod that is all about the domain names, the DNS stuff, right? now, I set that up. There's one pod all about maybe WordPress hosting. I can set that up. I see those as different user interfaces to me. And so that sounds like an example of Conway's law. Am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's totally right. But it can come back to bite you if you do it in the wrong spot. So for example, you might have different parts of, let's say it it can seem like a good idea on the surface as a product leader to divide the ownership into different stages of the customer journey. And so it's like, how do they learn about the product? How do they try it? What's the onboarding look like? How do you drive engagement? What's the retention elements to it, et cetera. You could break things down that way because you have nice, clean metrics for each of these teams. The problem is that as a user goes across that journey, (laughs) that they're going to encounter this person's interpretation of the product and that person's interpretation of the product. And the more autonomy you give them, which is generally a good thing, then the more opportunity for that sort of moving off in different tangential directions that different parts of the product have. Now, if that happened across different personas, maybe it's not that big of a deal because there's no single user that's spanning across five different personas simultaneously, or at least it's more rare. That kind of thing might happen. You might have, that would be an example where, It may seem like a good idea, but then you need to think about what that's going to reflect as when it comes to the
0: product design itself. Yeah, bringing it back to the customer journey is a really good tool for that. The last one here, process and practice. What's some key things going on there and what are you telling companies?
1: we talked about autonomy and i think that's a really important thing is to set up things in such a way that product teams are empowered to be able to make their own decisions and that means that sometimes the product leader has to kind of like step back a little bit so what are the kinds of then deliverables that as a product leader you want to create so that your team then has that ability to be autonomous while simultaneously recognizing that as the product leader you're still responsible for the collective work that they do it's not like you get to pass the buck over to them it it still like stops with you the ways that you can do that for example is you define the vision and the strategy and you create those like actual deliverables but there's other things right you define the personas you define the product metrics and the dashboards and you set up the right kind of metrics reviews to ensure that the right kinds of focus is in the right areas at the right times you define the product principles and the design principles that you want to make sure that the team is adhering to right so it has room for them to interpret to the extent that kind of enables them to come up with the best decisions, but they also have some guardrails that they're working within to ensure that there's consistency and alignment working across those teams as well. Maybe a famous example of that would be when Jeff Bezos said, everything is going to have an API endpoint attached to it. No exceptions ever I want to have essentially what he was saying is I want to convert all these kind of like little blocks that we have to being like Legos that can be reassembled because all the pips match up and you could have these interfaces that allow you to like repackage things. And that's exactly what led to Amazon e commerce converting into AWS and things like that was because they could repurpose these different kinds of components. And if you look at the explosive growth that company has had to be one of the most valued companies in the world, it's really, I think, a direct result of those types of decisions. So product principles like that can really go a long way. So we usually kind of work with teams on that kind of stuff. We get a little bit less into the really deep nuances of various agile development practices. There's a whole world of agile coaches and things like that to try to focus on a lot of those things. I would say that in general, I'm a believer in agile with a lowercase a, more so than I am with an uppercase a. Anytime you try to get dogmatic with process, you neglect to recognize i think the differences that exist across companies maybe a good example of this. i'll just like close with one example on that which is i once read an article from somebody who was at facebook and they suggested that you really don't need to have kind of like we were talking about you don't really need to have a direction or a strategy or right? you just kind of throw things out there and see what sticks and when you're facebook when you're facebook you can run a you can run a, an experiment in an hour. (laughs) And you probably have enough data points right in that hour to tell whether that thing's going to be effective or not effective or whatever. You can just turn it on for 1% of the population. It's not going to do any real brand damage if it's really bad, etc. And that's actually a pretty decent way for them to work. They have a huge amount of data that they should be taking advantage of. They have a huge amount of engagement that they should be taking advantage of. Right? There's all these things that they can do that they should optimize their practices around. Now, at the time that I read that article, I was working at a company called Opower, and we were delivering as a B2C solution where we were delivering these home energy reports to consumers. But utilities were actually our customer, and they were using our product to try to help drive down energy usage within people's homes. And it turns out that utilities are incentivized to do that. So we're delivering these home energy reports, but it's physically like a piece of paper. Like it was a PDF that we would generate. There was all this technology backbone behind it. And then we found out that the far most effective way of delivering this to consumers was not in the form of email because they just delete it. It was to send a letter, an unmarked envelope basically from your utility company, which everyone is, oh, I should probably open that. So they did and they would read it and that was where we got the efficacy of this program. But we couldn't tell that there was any interaction between them receiving this piece of paper and them changing their behaviors in their home To use less power, I could just see after the fact that they use less power, but I'd have to see it in aggregate and I'd have to see it over the course of a year to see the impact. And so we had all these different kinds of modules that we could show up on these reports and we had these ideas for experiments that we wanted to run with this. We ran hundreds of experiments with that kind of stuff, but the turnaround time to see the impact of what we were doing and to know whether that experiment was successful was a year in length. So when it's a year versus when it's an hour, think about the differences that have to exist in the practices, the process. So for us, testing different ideas didn't come from just throwing it out into the wild and seeing what happened. We had this whole process built up of doing huge amounts of usability studies and things like that because we could get, we could get feedback more immediately. And we could see what customers thought or what users thought about using our products in that moment so that we could then refine our designs, etc. And that became a big part of what we needed to do but some companies need that. Some companies don't. It depends on the nature of your business.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Really good example, right? So the the frame there makes a huge difference on what makes sense and the risk involved, like you said, very little reputational harm to Facebook if they got something wrong and they showed really some fraction of their audience, but those things all matter. Okay. Appreciate you sharing some insights about that as well. And as listeners know, we do like innovation quotes around here. I asked you to bring one for us and just explain what that one means to you. Can you share that with us?
1: Sure. So there's this great quote from Dwight Eisenhower. And he said, plans are worthless. Planning is everything. And when you just sit on that one for a couple of seconds, you're, wait, plans are worthless. And they're like, Oh, wait, I, I guess I see what he's saying, which is that it's, if you weren't for, it's not about the plan itself that gets created. It's about the process that goes into planning that really matters. And if there's anybody who would know something about this stuff, it would be Eisenhower in his time working on on being in charge of the entire Allied troops in World War II. And what he's referring to is this need to be willing to consider all these different future outcomes, thinking about where you're headed, etc. But at the same time, being nimble. And as you learn something new or something doesn't go according to plan, etc., that you're easily willing to just scrap the plan and kind of refresh that process. And so I think in a lot of ways, what he's really talking about is this kind of iterative, it's this sort of iterative development process coupled with future planning. And I think that's the mistake that too many people within who are these really hardcore agileists think that because they're nimble, that it means that they don't need to be directed. And the reality is, it's exactly why you need to be directed. So the example that I use on this all the time is this cross-country road trip that I took with my family, where we drove. It was like a movie Vacation. And we drove across the country, the kids in the back, that kind of thing, a lot of fun. And we planned the whole thing with Google Maps. And of course, we wanted to hit different destinations along the way. And we had some high-level concept of where we wanted to go. You also get turn by turn directions the whole way through. But if you realize that you're going through Chicago at 5 p.m., maybe that's not. Maybe you want to take out Ways at that moment to see where you're going, and and so it doesn't preclude you from using Ways just because you have Google Maps and a kind of like general plan that you had come up with a while back. But let's imagine what would happen if I tried to use Ways, but I didn't have a destination in mind. What would it do? It would just keep navigating me away from traffic over and over until I eventually found myself in the middle of nowhere or that I was going in circles as opposed to actually getting to my destination. Now sometimes ways will say we've rerouted you because you need to go around this kind of like thing, right? But we know like that's the better path to get where you're going. And sometimes ways will say it's going to take longer than expected and the best thing to do is just keep like running the course, right? This is still your best path forward. And I think so many companies run into that issue where they get into some sort of Friction or they deliver something early stage and they get some mediocre results and they're like left wondering is that an indication that we need to pivot away completely or is that an indication that we need to continue to invest in this thing? And every product person is always faced with that conundrum. It's really hard to answer that question and it just becomes a matter of the highest paid person's opinion when you don't have that vision. But when you do have that vision, it means you have a destination in mind and now suddenly you can actually figure out whether it's better to work around, or change your course, or whether you need to persevere nonetheless.
0: Good. I like that. I've heard many quotes about planning and, the va- and when plans change, when they meet reality. I wholeheartedly agree. Earlier in my career, I was a project manager, mm-hmm. and the planning process was so valuable because it did allow you to be more nimble once you implemented the plan, because you had thought through what risks might occur, what things might prevent us from being successful. And that thinking helps you a lot when you start executing. Great quote. Thanks for bringing that one to us from Dwight Eisenhower. How can people find out more about Prodify, more about your book, more about the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, sure. You can certainly find more about Prodify by going to the website. And that's Prodify.group, P-R-O-D-I-F-Y.group. You can find me on LinkedIn. My handle is easy, Ben Foster. Not too hard. I signed up a long time ago, so I actually got the name. And then the book. Build What Matters is available on Amazon. You can check it out there. It's available on both digital formats like Kindle as well as hardcover or paperback if you're interested.
0: Great. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes to make it easy for everyone to find. Ben, really appreciate the information. Thanks for sharing some of your wisdom from from being in product for so long, then advising so many companies as well on product work and sharing some of the things that you come up with. Thanks for being with us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much as well. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: For those listening, thank you as well for being here and being part of the product mastery journey. You'll find the written summary of everything we just discussed with Ben and that one page action guide to help you put into action. some of the key takeaways at productmasterynow.com slash four four nine. Everyone keep innovating. Thank you for listening to product mastery now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.